You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel. Streaming around the clock on Pluto TV, the CBS Sports app, and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. So first off, thank you for being here. If you haven't already subscribed to Inside Carolina, be sure to do that, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, or on YouTube, so you never miss any of the content our team at IC puts out. It hardly takes any time, and it helps us out a lot. Also, Speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us. So that's why I've got to remind everybody about Johnny T-Shirt. Johnny T-Shirt is the go-to shop for all things Carolina apparel. They've got your football jerseys, the T-shirts, the hats, and all the Carolina hoodies and jackets you could ever want. Now in the store, they also have the Orange Bowl T-shirt, so pick one up to always remember the time Carolina made a New Year's Six Bowl. You can visit them right on Franklin Street or go to johnnytshirt.com. And don't forget, Inside Carolina premium subscribers save 10% off their orders. All right, let's get to it. This week, as always, I'm joined by my fellow Carolina football letterman, Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. And guys, it's official. Carolina is heading to the Orange Bowl. It's the first time Carolina will play in a major college bowl game in the modern era, which sounds crazy to think about. But in what has been a wild and crazy year on and off the field, what did you guys think when you found out that Carolina would be going back to Miami to the Orange Bowl? Mike, starting with you. My first thought was, thank goodness we have a Johnny T-shirt sponsorship here because I need a new shirt and now I can get an Orange Bowl shirt because my daughter pooped on this one. <laughs> and this is the shirt I wear in all the games. So it's our lucky shirt, apparently, but it has baby poop on it and I can't get it out. So now I get a new shirt from Johnny T-shirt. Go to Johnny T-shirt, pick up your Orange Bowl shirts today. Um, but I was, I, in, in all seriousness, I was really excited about about the Orange Bowl, as everybody was, because this is a goal that I know that EJ had when he played. It's a goal that my class had when we played. It's a goal that every class that's been at Carolina has had to get to that Orange Bowl. Um, you know, to, to, it used to be the, you know, the ACC champion if they weren't in a BCS game. Um, you know, if they weren't in the BCS National Championship game, they'd go to the BCS Orange Bowl. Um, it was – back then, that was the prestige of the game. With the playoff, it's still prestigious as a New Year's Six Bowl. It, you know, they've, the, the playoff committee and the way they've structured it all has done a good job in the current format, which there's a lot of talk now potentially expanding it. This was the year that I think Cinderella probably should have made it in and didn't. Um, so maybe this will spark some expansion conversation. But, you know, the, the, the concern with that is to diminish the value of some of the other bowls. And the first one that comes to mind is something like the Orange Bowl when it's not in the playoff rotation as one of the sponsor playoff games uh, or playoff venues. So, you know, it's, 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 the reason it's a big deal is that this is the ACC's premier bowl game, right, unless you're in the playoff. This is the ACC's premier bowl game. It's a New Year's Six game, you know, playing on January 2nd. It's going to be – it's a nighttime game, uh-oh, right? Um, so prime time going to be on television, top tier, uh, announcers, right. All eyes are gonna be on us and it's a top tier opponent. And it's a coach that we've played against before, right? I mean, Carolina has encountered Jimbo Fisher in the past, albeit under different staffs. Um, but Jimbo is familiar with, you know, with our program. Um, it's not the first time that Carolina has gone up against Jimbo Fisher and hopefully it won't be the, um, it'll, 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 it'll continue the streak of wins against Jimbo Fisher led teams. So, 
Um, I was excited about it. It's, it's a real feather in the cap and it shows a positive trajectory for this program. Um, you know, we, we were, we were very fortunate this year, I guess, to have, you know, the two ACC teams make it into the playoff. If we're ever going to have it happen, this was the year that luck sort of fell on us. So I'm hoping that luck sort of continues uh, down in Miami on January 2nd. EJ, what about you? What were your uh, first thoughts when you saw Carolina was going to the Orange Bowl? Well, uh, minus uh, – I'm forget ignore my demeanor right now because I'm overwhelmingly excited right now about us going to that bowl game and, and for a couple different reasons. Of course, all the reasons that Mike just mentioned, uh, but I kind of wanted to expand on that a little bit more. I mean, even though the Orange Bowl right now isn't a part of the uh, college football playoff rotation and it's easy to, to for, for this game to kind of lose its luster because, I mean, you're, you're not – competing for a national championship but the orange bowl is still a prestigious bowl game because all the guys that were around my era or a little bit before or maybe some that um came a little bit after the orange bowl is it i mean that's still that bowl hearing that we're going to the old orange bowl still makes me think and makes me feel that we've gotten all the success maybe not, not that we wanted to get but if you think about where this program was last year and even think about where it's two years ago I mean we would have never thought we would have been at the Orange Bowl game we thought this never was be an, another year for us down in Charlotte or at one of these obscure bowl games um, I was talking with one of my friends who works for the athletic department at App State and they had a bowl game yesterday in Myrtle Beach so Thank God that we're not on, on, on that schedule. And I still think – I saw highlights BYU played UCF yesterday. I didn't even know there was a BYU bowl game. And that, exactly. was, a, that was a top 25 bowl game. Exactly. So I, I look at this like this. Like even in this era where you have all these teams that are going to bowl games, I think everyone automatically qualified this year. We are still in one of the most prestigious bowl games. I think that's going to do well for recruiting. We get another shot to, to get in front of those kids down in South Florida. I mean, even though we aren't in direct – directly competing with Miami for recruits as we talked about on our previous pods when you get to that national level you're going to be going after those four and five star guys and a lot of those has happened to reside in the southern part of Florida so I think that this is going to be another chance for us to get in front of them it's going to be a chance to to play against a, a higher level of competition I feel like I mean Texas A&M probably could play with the Clemson or Notre Dame so we're playing with still playing a high caliber team and if we win this game that's still I think puts us in a position of, of the people who are going to be voting for our rankings next year, that still puts us in a good position in their eyes. And being that we have a lot of people coming back, uh, mainly our, our star quarterback. So I definitely think this is a, this is a big game for us. I mean, minus going, minus going to the uh, college football playoffs, this is the best case scenario for our team this year. And, and even though we did drop a couple of games that I felt like we should have won, this still was a great season. I mean, it's not what we wanted it to be, but it still was an absolutely magnificent season. So I'm super excited about us playing in the Orange Bowl and a post more excited about it being a post-New Year's Day game. Yeah, when you, you hit on the main point that I was going to make, the same thing where it's like, if you would have told me two years ago when I was covering a two-win team that, you know, two years later I'd be – getting ready to go on a plane to go cover a team in the orange ball. I would have, I would have thought I switched teams, which whatever team I was covering or, you know, some, something crazy happened. And it, it is crazy to see how quickly this Carolina team has turned into a team that does belong in the national conversation going to a game like the orange ball. And Mike, you kind of talked about it too, where it's like when you play for a school like North Carolina in the ACC, like, if you can't get to the playoffs, obviously the playoffs is, is the end goal, but the Orange Bowl is not a bad consolation prize for missing out on the playoffs. And you're still in that national conversation. Like when I think back to the 2015 team, um, 
that that team is probably the team that should have went to the Orange Bowl first in Carolina history where we lose to uh, Clemson in the ACC championship at 11-1 and and they take a 10-2 and Florida State team that they didn't even play in uh, the conference championship game over us. So, you know, I'm happy for the guys in this program who I know what they've gone through going from a five-win team in a two-year span to now being in the Orange Bowl when, you know, we know as former players how much an Orange Bowl appearance means to this team. And it's, it's not even a case necessarily where you feel like you have to win the game. Um, just thinking big picture for the program. I think it's a bigger story that Carolina is in the game than what actually happens in the game, and especially with the opt-outs. And we're going to get into the opt-outs later. But, EJ, what were your initial thoughts when you saw Carolina would be going up against a top-five team in Texas A&M? You get that that SEC kind of drawing. Oh, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I think – I mean – this is the type of the games that, that we want to be playing. I mean, we didn't get a shot to take on Auburn at the beginning of this year, but we still get a chance to see a top-tier quality SEC opponent. And these are the type of teams that we need to play against and beat if we want to get to where I think our program can go. And that's being talked about and seriously considered for as a national championship contender. Um, in Texas A&M, I mean, they, they had a, a couple of years where they weren't well, they kind of didn't hit their mark. But other than that, I think over the past 10 or 12 years, they've been a top-tier program. I mean, one of my good friends, and Mike knows him well as well, Mike Bennett, um, we played with down in Tampa. He um, he went to Texas A&M, so this would be a good time to kind of actually talk a little trash back and forth with him and reconnect on some of those things. So it's it's just – I think from me and Mike being both NFL guys, us playing them, it's, it's a different level of satisfaction to us because we've been in those locker rooms where guys have told us, like, yeah, Carolina puts a lot of guys in the NFL, but are they winning games? Are they in these top-tier bowl games? Are they playing after New Year's? And, like – that's how we look at those New Year's Six games. It's like you're not really in a bowl game unless you're playing after New Year's. So that kind of goes back to the, the point we were just talking about. But I think um, there are going to be a lot more eyes on this game now. Um, you, you have a Texas A&M program that's kind of trying to establish themselves in the, um, in the SEC as like they were in, I think, the Big 12 that they were in. And us um, kind of coming out of the rafters. So I think they're going to be there will be a lot of eyes on this because people want to see if we're for real. Can we compete with teams on that level outside of our conference? Or are we just a strong team for the ACC? And I think this will go a, a long way towards proving or disproving that. I honestly think that we're going to prove that we're more than just a top caliber for ACC team. Uh, some some of the opt-outs are going to hurt. Uh, our defense, I mean, Chaz Surratt's not going to be playing in this game. So it's going to be really interesting. I, I don't I don't think they're seeing the full potential, but we have a lot of young guys, like, and I know we'll get into that later. They're, they're going to come in. I think they're going to have a really good game. I, I got my eyes on number 25, uh, Mr. Rucker. I think he's going to come in and show us what we're going to get over the next few years. So, I mean, this excites me. This is definitely – I think this is going to be a test of the bar of where our program is right now. What do we need to do? What type of players do we need to be recruiting? What type of X and O X and O's adjustments do we need to make in order to to better um, conform our offense and defense to the personnel that we have? So th- this will be a good test as well as a good reward for the players and all the work that they've been doing. Um, as you mentioned, the older guys who are on that um, 2015 team and had some rough years, and some of those younger guys are going to be able to start off their career saying that, hey, this is what we did when I came in and we can only go up from here. So I definitely think this is going to be a benchmark game in our program um, because of the game that we're playing in and because of who we're playing. 
Mike, you had mentioned the Jimbo Fisher factor. So what were your first thoughts when you saw that Carolina would be playing number five, Texas A&M? Very similar to what EJ said, right? It's an opportunity to play a higher caliber opponent. Um, and, and EJ's point about not being able to play Auburn early in the season is right. I mean, we want to, we need to be able to, the SEC is the top dog, whether that's actually true on the field, right? Or it's just fan perception and media perception doesn't really matter, right? The SEC is by all accounts, the top dog. And we need to be playing the premier programs from the SEC, right? So not getting the opportunity to open the season against an Auburn, but getting the opportunity to close the season against a higher ranked, right? What played out to be a better team in Texas A&M and having the opportunity to beat that team. I think that's, that's another step in where this program needs to go. And this orange bowl birth is the logical progression, right? We were, we had to fight to get into a bowl game last year, right? We took a big leap in a weird year with COVID and with recruiting and with uh, off-season training programs and things like that. Players getting sick, depleted rosters. Um, Carolina didn't really have that issue. We, Carolina didn't really have a ton of COVID issues this season, right? So we were actually able to field the team that would have been fielded generally. Um, otherwise, with the exception of a couple of opt-outs and like a Miles Wolfork getting kicked off the team, right? But that's not COVID-related. Those are the ty- that's the type of attrition that you'll typically see. So we didn't get bit by the COVID bug the way that, I, that a lot of teams did. So we were able to field a team right, that the fans can rest assured would have been, for the most part, on the whole, the team that we would have fielded this season. And that team had a lot of success. So for that team to show the kind of talent, depth, maturity and success that it had despite a couple of slip-ups against a an unranked and frankly not very good Florida State team and an unranked and frankly not very good Virginia team right with the exception of those slip-ups right this the product that was on the field this season was on the whole very good particularly on the offense and then we saw what the defense could be against that route at Miami so taking that momentum and moving it into the Orange Bowl right the Orange Bowl is the next logical progression for a program that's trying to make it to the college football playoff, right? Because the playoff now, as opposed to the old BCS system, the playoff now is the echelon. Like that is where you want to be. That's the goal. Um, and, and so far the, the playoff has been, uh, it's, it's been an oligopoly of only four, four teams for the most part, right? We've always seen Alabama. We've always seen Clemson um, with the exception of one year. The first year we had Florida State, it was Florida State, Oregon, Alabama. Uh, who was the fourth team the first year of the playoff? Was it Ohio State? Was it Ohio State? Yeah, Cardell Jones, right? Was that mm-hmm. the first year? Okay. So you had, so, you know, you're looking at uh, two typical players. And then since then, it's been Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, and then somebody else. Notre Dame's in it now for the second time, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's the same general programs that you're seeing, the same blue bloods. Um, if Carolina is going to break into that mold, this Orange Bowl is the next logical step in that right this is the test you're going to see where we are from a depth standpoint like ej pointed out and again we're going to get into the opt-outs but you're going to see what our depth looks like what our young guys look like you're going to get a preview of the actual talent and development that's on this roster right or the talent and the way that it has developed on this roster Um, you're going to get that test against texas a&m so when i saw that we were playing a team like that I was excited about it. You want a top five team, right? You want to close out the year with potentially two top 10 wins, right? That's going to catapult you and your sophomore now junior quarterback who we, you know, remains to be seen if he's going to be here as a senior, right? That's going to, that's, that propels you into next season where you are in a position because your, your, your quarterback has to be here, right? Um, 
your star quarterback. So you're in a position where you've already got the quarterback, which is typically the hardest piece. And you've got a lot of other offensive pieces, right. That are either coming back or that are just ready to kind of reload. And then on defense, we're going to see what this team's going to be. So it's going to catapult us into 2021. Right. And you're, and, and we'll, we'll be in a position to actually have real expectations based on the performance in this game. We can either have real expectations or we can be like a Texas right? When they won that Sugar Bowl a few years ago in Sam Ellinger. I talked about this on our last podcast. Sam Ellinger said, you know, Texas is back. Texas is most certainly not back, okay? We don't want to fall into that trap. We don't want to fall into the Texas trap, but that's one of, that's one of two routes we're going to go. We're either going to be what Texas thought was happening to their program, getting back to where they typically are and where they should be, although you can make the argument that Texas's football expectations have been a little inflated, in the, in the history of their program. Um, but typically what you consider, you consider to be Texas, a top tier program. That's where they thought they were going back to and they stumbled and they haven't, they haven't gotten back anywhere near. They were a few years ago with Ellinger and that, and that, and that sugar bowl. We can either, we can either stumble like that. Right. And reality sets in and we're brought back down to earth, or we'll see that this is actually the next step and that this team is really progressing. So this is going to be a great litmus test for the way this program is developing, whether it's, whether it, this was a kind of a fluke or if we really are taking the next steps under Mac Brown that, and the staff, you know, that, that we expect we are. And that frankly, I think EJ would agree from a player's standpoint, we, we think is actually happening. I think I see a cult, there's been a culture change and there has been a, a talent change. There's been a, a professionalism change, right? Not to disparage anything that Larry Fedora's staff did, but just amongst the players, mm-hmm. right? Amongst the players, there seems to be, from what I can tell, interacting with a few of them and seeing the games on television, the way they carry themselves and the way they, the way they play throughout games, again, with the exception of two this year, um, there is a professionalism shift that's taken place on the field with them. I think that's more indicative of positive trajectory than it is this being a fluke. And, I, I, and, and, and to iterate that point, I do think I agree with the professionalism. I think I really couldn't put my hand on what exactly I think's changed. But I mean, if you think about how these guys have kind of been handled being penalized and, and how that's kind of been cut down and the glaring thing is the COVID numbers. I mean, these guys are disciplined. It's easy mm-hmm. to get lost and, and, and just go off campus or go back home and visit your family and expose yourself to some of these things. But like you said, we haven't had many if any guys really miss significant time because of COVID, because these guys are doing the right things. They've, they've bought into what these coaches are telling them. They're bought into what the training and the medical staff have told them. They said, hey, if you said they, they knew that they had something really special that could potentially be really special this year. And even though they didn't make the playoffs, going to the Orange Bowl is still something really specially, special, especially for our program. So my, my hat goes off to those guys because honestly, Mike, with, with the group that we had when we were at school and we had COVID – I don't even think we would have been able to field a team past the no. second game. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, Mac mentioned in his Orange Bowl press conference the other day that there was a team meeting that took place, a players called team meeting, um, players only meeting that he did, wasn't even aware of earlier in the summer um, where some of the senior leadership pulled everybody together and said, listen, COVID's a thing. We want to play this year. You're to the young guys, right? If you, if you want to be here, you're not going to go out. You're not going to party. You're not going to do dumb stuff. You're not going to put yourself at risk of not being able to play, you know, not being able to be on the field, right? So if you want to play, these are the rules we all have to agree to and we all have to follow internally. The players did this, right? And if you don't want to be here, that's fine, but get out. 
right? Go party, do whatever you want to do, but just get out so we know who we have. That is a level of maturity and that's a level of professionalism, right? That I think is, 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 is indicative of positive changes in the program. And for Mac to say that he didn't even know it had happened, I mean, that's possible. Those sorts of things happen when we played, right? But, you know, really good mature teams have those meetings and then actually stick to the things they talk about. It's in those meetings. One thing to, to call the players only meeting to say, oh, we've got control of our program. I know we did this, right? It's a whole nother to actually do it, set goals, and then stick to them. And it looks like this team actually stuck to the goals that it set for itself, not the goals that the coaching staff set for it. Yeah, that kind of goes back to the point we've kind of made all year where like Mac Brown deserves a lot of credit for this turnaround, but you don't have this kind of turnaround without the senior leadership from guys like Michael Carter, Chaz Surratt, Tamon Fox, the, the Patrice Renee's of this team. And mm-hmm. just kind of adding to the point on Texas A&M, you know, this is a chance to knock off a huge name and I'm not sure Texas A&M is the fifth ranked team in the country right now. I'm not sure whether or not that's completely justified um, because you, you look at a team like A&M and they have the 13th best total defense in the country, allowing only, um, what is it, 316 yards per game. But then when you look at some of the teams they've played this year, it's, it's Vanderbilt, yeah. Mississippi State. They haven't played a lot, South, right? South they, Carolina, LSU. They barely, barely beat Florida. They got blown out by four Auburn. touchdowns to, you know, Alabama, who's blown everybody out. Yeah, um, Auburn, Tennessee. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go through the passing yards that they've given up in these games. Vanderbilt, Seals passed for 150 uh, against Alabama. Mac Jones passed for 435. Florida, Trask passed for 312. Mississippi State, Rodgers passed for 219. Arkansas, Franks passed for 239. South Carolina, Hill passed for 66 yards. LSU, Finley passed for 118 yards. Auburn, Bo Nix passed for 144. And then they closed out the season against Tennessee where Stout passed for 104 passing yards. So when you're, you're listening to all those names, Carolina, the offense Carolina's bringing in is a lot closer – to the Alabama Mac Jones where he's thrown for 400 plus yards or the Trask 300 plus yards than a guy like Hill at South Carolina who's thrown for 66 yards. So I think some of those numbers are inflated. Oh, that's where... that's why that staff got fired. <laughs> uh, I, get, I get it now. <laughs> so, I see. So you get the big name team in Texas A&M with their fifth rank uh, number behind them but it's not exactly like they're beating murderers row and you know no it's a little like we were number five right yeah and despite the opt-outs like this carolina offense is still prolific it's still historic (laughs) no matter who who's back there as long as sam howell is making the trip and the last time i checked sam howell is making the trip and that kind of leads into the next point that i wanted to make where at the time of this recording carolina is a seven point underdog and I think you guys can speak for it with your experience as well at bowl games. But besides the obvious talent factor that comes into play with bowl games, bowl games often come down to what team wants to be there the most. And you have Mm -hmm. a team like Texas A&M who just got snubbed from the playoffs. They wanted another chance to lose to Alabama 56 to 24 (laughs) or whatever that score was. I don't know. I don't know why they're making such a stink. Like, like they were going to do something against Alabama, but you have a team who, obviously had higher goals, Texas A&M. You have their quarterback, Kellen Mond, saying it's, it's a joke that they didn't get into the playoffs versus a team like Carolina who's playing its best football late, 
and it's playing in arguably the biggest bowl game in school history with another chance to slay a top 10 opponent. How do you think that kind of factors into the game, Mike, starting with you? Yeah, so bowl preparation is kind of drudgery. Um, you know, the, the whole time you're kind of – what's on your mind is the flight and the hotel and what are we going to do when we get there, right? It's Miami. In a normal year, right, there'd be a lot of distractions for the Orange Bowl. Those distractions aren't really going to be there this, this year. Um, there's going to be a lot of restrictions on them when they get down there. This is going to be a business trip. In, in, in the, the way that you hear players talk about this is a business trip – this really is a business trip. There's nothing else to do but play football. There's nothing else to do but practice, prepare, be in your playbook and be in your game plan and then go play the game. There's nothing else to do down there. Despite all the glitz and glam and the lights of Miami, nothing's going to actually be happening down there because of COVID. So this is an opportunity for Carolina to go down um, and really maintain their focus and put, and, and put a good product on the field. You're exactly right that what really matters is the team that wants to be there. Because like I said, it's bowl prep is drudgery. It's two, three, sometimes four weeks of prep, right? On the same team, right? Going over the same film. It's like when you're getting ready to play game one, right? And you're in training camp and you're doing install three weeks out, right? By the time you get to the game, you're sick of seeing that team on film. You're ready to play the game, right? But you're also, you, there's a trap where you stop focusing, you stop preparing as hard as you can, in the days leading up to the game because you feel like, oh, I've already seen this already and you think you know it all, players fall into that trap too. That's another pitfall in bowl games, right, is you basically get prep overload, right, and you get, you get lulled into a false sense of security as a player and as a team that you already know what's going to happen, you're prepared and all of that. Um, the good teams understand that the preparation is never actually over and that attitude is what's going to win that game. You're exactly right. That, you know, Texas A&M, the, the first thought I had was, Despite what Jimbo may have said in his press conference, you know, his Orange Bowl press conference, those players are not as excited to be in this game as they would have been the playoff, right? I think they – I'm not saying they, they're overlooking this, but to them they feel like this is a step down. In reality, the Orange Bowl is the best Texas A&M was going to do this year, okay? I mean, you already, ran, you already ran through the record, right? This is where that team should be, right? Carolina, I think, is hitting above its weight class a little bit, right? They're, pun they're punching up some being in, the, being in the Orange Bowl this year, right? They are a talented team. They had a lot of success this year, but they had some snubbles, right? And they, you know, without some help from Notre Dame, they wouldn't be here. But Texas A&M, I think, was going to be here. I don't think they were going to fall below a game like this, and I don't think they were going to ascend above a game like this. This is exactly where that team needs to be. And my concern, if I'm Jimbo Fisher and I'm that coaching staff, is that my players have bought into – you know, my puffery in the media that we absolutely should be there. It's a joke that we're not there. Um, my players have bought into that as, you know, they had a birthright to be in this playoff. And because of that, the Orange Bowl is a letdown. That's bad news for Texas A&M, right? We've seen that happen with teams. Look at, uh, you know, Georgia, again, another Sugar Bowl game, right? Georgia lose or, uh, or sorry, Ale was it, who? Georgia lost to Hawaii. No, Georgia blew out Hawaii. Alabama lost a bad Sugar Bowl, correct? several, several years ago. This is back in the BCS era. Yeah, maybe. I also know um, UCF beat Auburn in the Peach Bowl. A couple UCF beat Auburn yeah, in the Peach Bowl. the undefeated season. These, these, these top-tier programs, right, which A&M is on the cusp of being but isn't yet. People forget that A&M in the Big 12 was a bad football team. They were not good, right? They had years where they had flashes. They were kind of like a Carolina, frankly. They were like the Carolina of the Big 12. They had flashes where they were good, but most years they were mediocre or – not making bowl games. Um, this A&M team in the SEC, right, has shown improvement. They've sort of changed their culture, and they're on the upswing. But this game is exactly where they were supposed to be all along. This is where you would have predicted them to be preseason.
right? Um, but in their minds, I feel like they've fallen into the trap. That they think they should have been something more than they are. That is detrimental to Texas A&M, and history shows us that teams that have that attitude can lose to an, under, an underdog team, right? In many cases, or not in, in some cases, not a, not a power five team, right? Um, but it's beneficial to a school like Carolina, who's the seven-point underdog, right? And seven points is a tighter spread than, than it seems, right? Seven points is, you know, Vegas thinks that, yeah, and I'm sure that line is going to change before the game, right? You know, with, if, if Texas A&M has some opt-outs, that, that line is going to shrink a little bit. Um, but what that says is, is, is Vegas thinks this is going to go either way. It's kind of a toss up, right? A field goal could likely determine this game is, is how, is how this looks like it's going to play out. And I agree with that. Uh, if Carol, if the Carolina that, you know, we expect to be there shows up, I think that's absolutely, that, that could absolutely be the case. I've been proven wrong on that before, right? I thought Miami was going to be a loss because Derek King was going to run for 60, 70 plus yards. And we weren't going to, you know, and that was going to, that was going to blow us up. He may not have got a hundred or 200 yards rushing, but I thought if he rushes for 60 or 70, Miami might beat us by two touchdowns. That obviously did not happen. Right. So I've been proven wrong on these, on these sorts of predictions before. And I hope that I'm proved wrong again in this orange bowl, but I think Texas A&M has found itself in a position where internally they better, they better write that ship because they've got a team coming in that's talented and they got a team coming in that really does want to be there. Um, and teams that, like you said, teams that want to be in bowl games, that are excited about being there, they typically capitalize on those opportunities. Um, so Texas A&M is, 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 is in danger of potentially laying an egg in this game. Um, I, I, would, I would advise them, against my better judgment, to not fall into that trap. Uh, because, you know, Carolina has embarrassed some people this year already. Been embarrassed, but also embarrassed some people. Um, so hopefully A&M is, is – paying attention to that and, you know, for their own sake. EJ, how do you think that kind of factors into it where Carolina is in one of the biggest games for their program and a team like Texas A&M is maybe still thinking about we should have been in the playoffs? Well, I, can, I have two perfect case studies for a situation like this, and those would be the two bowl games that I would have had a chance to play in. Um, yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah, we we were not excited about playing in Charlotte. Um, no. Coach Davis, it came in. We thought we were we we were smelling our piss. We thought we were high and mighty. We we heard that we were playing in the, in the um what was it a Meineke Car Care Bowl back then? Um, one of those years. One of those years. It was it was Orange Bowl up to the very end, if you remember right. That that was that that was that year. That was that junior 2000, year. Two thousand eight. Yeah, two thousand eight mm-hmm. was we might actually with eight wins go to the Orange Bowl. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're prepping for this thing. None of us want to be there. We're just like okay, let's just get it over with. We're just driving down the road to Charlotte. And Pat White ends up breaking his career best in a West Virginia record in passing. And he had been a running quarterback 98% of his career. The next year, we go into that game. I mean, we're not as jaded about this game. We're a little excited. A couple of us guys who who were the two-star recruitment, last class really that that um, John Bunning brought in. Other Well, Mike's class was technically the last class, I think. But we were excited about finishing our career in a bowl game. Were we as excited? Were some of our, our younger guys who were four- and five-star recruits, were they as excited? No. What happens that game? We go into that game, a top-five rush defense, and we give up 100-and-some-odd yards to Deion Lewis in the first half. So if you don't want to be in these games, if you don't prepare, the thing that has helped you helped you get to that bowl game all during the season for us has been 
offensively and somehow miraculously defensively being able to stop some people over the last couple of weeks, that can go away because, as Mike said, you're watching the same team for almost a month. Uh, you're tired of preparing for them. By the time you get to where the bowl is actually being held, you're just going through the motions. You're not focused. You're, you're worried about what bowl event do we have today? Mm-hmm. What swag are they giving us? Yeah. What, what kind of clothes are we going to get in? When do I get when, to go back to the hotel room and take a nap? Exactly. Those are the things that you're thinking about. So you're not prepared. So I think I think it's the, the exact opposite this year. I think a lot like Mike said, we are punching above our weight class. And a lot of these guys probably are honestly surprised after the loss to UVA and the loss of Florida State that they're even playing in this bowl game. And and like you said, none of these guys are really there to witness some of that early Larry Fedora success, the 2015 ACC championship game and some of those other things. So I don't think that they tasted success enough to be jaded. And this goes kind of back to the professionalism that this team has shown. I do think that they're going to take a, a working a workings man mentality into this game and not just see this as, Hey, this is a, uh, this being here is enough. This is a reward for the great things that we've done this season. I do think that, when you start talking about some of these higher level recruits, these guys want to win championships. They're not content with going to a school, being an all ACC player, I mean, drafted. A lot of these guys want to go to these schools and they want to win. So I think a lot of, a, a lot of these kids are going to be thinking, Hey, this is our, this is our step into the limelight. This is our first little uh, taste of what success can really give you. Um, so I think that they're, they're going to be fully locked in. Nothing, else tells me they're going to be fully locked in. Nothing tells me they're not going to be fully locked in. And I think even with some of the opt-outs that we're having, I honestly think that we're going to see maybe a, a potentially better performance from some of this defense because we're going to have some fresh legs out there who are going into the game knowing that they're going to be paying, playing the bulk of the snaps, knowing that they're going to be the starter and filling in for some of these guys. So I think they're going to take that on their chest and say, hey, this is finally my opportunity. I've sat back. I've studied the flow of the game. i studied film. I know the, the offensive and defensive systems like the back of my hand. So it's going to be a time for them to go in there and step in against a team that's jaded and does not think that they, they, they should be here and thinks that they deserve something better. So this could be something really – this could be really bad for Texas A&M, and it could be something that really lights a fire under our team for um, next season and the seasons to come. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving nonstop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel. Streaming around the clock on Pluto TV, the CBS Sports app, and streaming on Paramount+. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance. Avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the plague. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is the next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, the two points that I had off that were I'm glad you mentioned how your team didn't feel like you wanted to be at the It's bowl 100% game in true. 2008 yeah. because similarly the bowl game in 2014 where either you're playing at a lesser bowl game or in a city you really don't want to be in. Oh, Detroit, the, the Caesars, Little Caesars Bowl. <laughs> the quick uh, no, pizza quick pizza. Lane. Quick lane bowl at the time. It was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I remember all my gears with, like, tires on it. Yeah. But I remember, like, we, yeah, got, we got some of that. 
we got to the quick lane bowl it was it was like the game was december 26 so we're in detroit the whole week at christmas and we're just like we're just sitting there in the players lobby like what the hell are we doing in detroit right now like we're playing against Rutgers. like let's just go home for christmas nobody wants to be here and i i I think that was kind of an indication for, for how the game went where we lose to Rutgers 21 to 40, where we're getting embarrassed by uh, a team that ha- is, has struggled ever since then. And then, you know, we kind of struggled leading up to that. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Outside of a couple of Ray Rice. They were years. struggling. They were struggling that morning. <laughs> Outside of a couple of Ray Rice years, Rutgers has been a down program. Oh so yeah. It, it yeah, was don't just, remi- a, don't remind us. It was just embarrassing to be in Detroit. It was embarrassing to be playing Rutgers. And I, th- I think we looked like that out there on the field. And then the second point you made is um, just how this week is different or how the bowl week will be different for the guys because they're leaving. I'm pretty sure they're practicing a normal week in Chapel Hill and then they're leaving a Thursday or a Friday right before the game. So it's like a normal road game for them where if you put, any of the teams I played in for a week in Miami that first night where you normally don't have a curfew. And the second you get off that plane, they're handing you that like $600 per diem. A lot of the guys on our team are spending that $600 that night. $600. Oh, yeah. Must what be nice. Bowl games, what kind of bowl games are you in? I think, I think the – I burned Nashville down on 100 bucks <laughs> for a week. I think the Belk Bowl was about 500 or 600 because it, they also factored in um, travel. That you, that you guys travel. don't want to be there? Mm-hmm. Oh, so they were trying to make you happy because you didn't want to be there? The travel money to get to Charlotte. So, like, we had – Oh, that's the, right, yeah. So, because they let us go home before then. So, like, I was coming from New York, so they had to get more <clears throat> money from New York. So, I remember we showed up to Charlotte the first night. No, curfew. I lived 20 minutes from the hotel. So No curfew, like, a week before the game. I'm like – I just I just got handed six hundred dollars, no curfew, in a in a fun city like Charlotte with all my with all my boys. So uh, that was a good time. So I think Carolina, you're going to see more focus from a team uh, in a bowl game where you don't have all the extracurricular activities and you don't have all the bowl events and you're not worrying about you know where do I have to be at a certain time. It's we're getting off the plane. Like this is the the way this team handles this game is going to be exactly the same preparation that they just had two weeks ago when they're going to the same city, they're going to the same stadium, probably staying in the same hotel where it's going to feel like, you know, basically deja vu for this team. But the biggest storyline from the Orange Bowl so far has been on Carolina's side. It's been with the opt-outs, Michael Carter, Chaz Surratt, and Deami Brown all opting out Mm -hmm. for this game. What did you guys make of their decision to sit EJ starting with you? Uh, this is actually a conversation that Mike and I had through text. It's, it's, it's a really interesting thing because, I mean, if, if, if I'm just speaking for myself personally, the, the passion that we had in that program, and it's really kind of similar to some of these guys where you actually help see a program turn around from mm-hmm. going to – from winning three games to consistently winning eight games. I want to finish that out. I want to play in the biggest bowl game in my school's history. I mean, just, I mean, even if you're thinking about it practically, I mean, if you come back once your playing days are done and you want to coach there or something like that, and you remind them that you were a part of the biggest bowl game in Carolina history, that that goes a long way. So me personally, I would have wanted to stay and finish. 
but I've also never been in these guys' shoes where they could potentially be first or second round draft picks, finish out a childhood dream that they have. And with Chad Surratt, it's even more special because he and his brother can both be drafted in the first round. Um, So I honestly, I mean, I honestly cannot say that I would have made a different decision than some of these guys made. Um, it's it, it, it's a real tough one because it's like, do you finish out? I mean, you, you make a commitment to a program when you first start that you want to finish out. And that's what a lot of the older guys, a lot of the boomers want to come in and talk about, oh, these guys made a commitment to this program, yada, yada, yada. Well, scholarships are one year at a time. <laughs> scholarships are not for four years. Scholarships are one year at a time. So every year this guy is pledging a one year at a time. And honestly, if you want to look at it like that, but all these guys have, have paid their just due for this program. They finish out this regular season. They've done great things for these programs. So I won't dare sit here and speak as a fan, as, as someone who wants my team to have the best chance to win, to go out there and say, oh, these guys should be playing. They know better because this is this is one game. These guys are talking about the futures of not only themselves, but generations to come with, with some of the talent that I think these guys have and the, the professionalism that we mentioned taking that to the NFL coaches are going to love them and they're going to either stick around that they, they can be, they can go and, and be a starter like Gio Bernard was, or they can go and just be a special teams guru like Brandon Tate was and still have a wonderful 11 year career. So it, it, it does kind of suck. But on the other hand, this is not the situation that I would have left my team in. They have talent behind them. Like this is the only thing that they're really, I think that they're taking away mainly is experience and actually knowing what they're going out and seeing. I have EJ's just said our depth sucked, but go ahead. I mean, you call a spade a spade. Other than not, not now, now I won't say that about our defensive line because I had to stave off a first rounder my last two years in college in Quentin Copel. So I do think we were we were deeper then. But if you think about it, linebacker, if, if we didn't have a Quan Sturdivant or a Bruce Carter or um, a, a Kevin Reddick or a guy like that, if they opt out and don't play, then that completely changes everything. I mean, that's that. It's so that's, certain, L- that's LSU for us, right? I mean, not exactly. Bruce and Quan, but that's LSU for us. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, everyone was guys. Having a call on unexpected guys, yeah. Exactly, and that's a game we should have dominated as well. So, I mean, this I, I'm happy for these guys. I think that part of the Carolina legacy and part of building a program is having those ambassadors in the NFL and having guys that when, when, when some of these high school kids are have watched their college football and on Sunday when they're sitting here watching guys making plays and they say, oh, that guy went to Carolina. I want to go there and be coached the same way that he was and, and be a part of that program. So, I mean – this is also another form of a recruiting tool. So I, I really think as a fan, it's, it's really how you choose to look at it. Uh, as an alumni and a person who's been through the NFL process, I definitely respect what these guys are doing, and I would give them the advice to go ahead and do that. I think all these guys are probably on track to graduate, I think. So, I mean, or, or if not, they can always come back and, and get their degrees. But I, I commend them for this decision. It's, it's going to suck, but I do think we have the talent to kind of over overcome some of these things. It's going to take some creative game planning on the defensive side, I think. And I think a lot of the plays that we called are going to have to be tailored towards uh, maybe um, – uh, guys like Dez Evans, uh, Chris Collins, Tamon Fox, to get some of those guys involved, and, Jer- and Jeremiah Gimmel, get some of those guys moving around. But I still do think we have a, a great chance to win this game. So I-, I support these guys' decision to opt out and start preparing for the next stage of their life. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting kind of thinking about that point where Carolina needs a player like Chad Surratt to be a first-round pick, to be a home run in the NFL 
more than they need his performance in the orange ball. So I, I thought that Correct. was kind of an interesting perspective to take, but Mike, what were your kind of thoughts on the opt-outs for Carolina? Yeah. I mean, again, same as EJ, right? My initially, my gut reaction was, man, a couple of these guys are captains, right? What kind of message does that send to the team? But then I remember who those captains are, right? And the message that they have sent to the team all year long mm-hmm. is their commitment to the team and their commitment to the program, and their commitment to, um, to the staff and to the success of this team. Um, you know, they are, you know, Chaz and Michael specifically are guys who could have left when Mac Brown came in. Right. And they, they didn't have, they didn't have to be here. Um, they chose to stay and they chose to build. And I think their performance on the field all season long, their body of work shows their commitment to this team. Um, you know, yeah, I, as a fan, I want Diami and I want Chaz and I want Michael there. I want them playing because they're three of our best players, right? Offensively, it's a little less of a hit. I mean, Michael not being there as the two-headed monster at running back, right? Let's, low, let's, let's hope that Javante sticks, sticks around and doesn't, doesn't opt out last second. Um, you know, but if, assuming we have Javante, he's going to have a much bigger workload. We're going to see if Javante can be in every down, every carry back, right? Yeah, he's a 1,000-yard rusher, but that's splitting carries. Um, you know, that's a, that, there's a tempo and a game plan thing that goes into that. Who's the other guy going to be? Is it going to be Elijah Green, right? Is it going to be British Brooks? Is it going to be Henderson? Like, who's it going to be back there with him? Um, who's going to be the guy that shows up? This is the type of situation, though, I, I think that the silver lining for the other players on the roster is it creates opportunities for some of those guys. It's going to create opportunities for an Elijah Green. It's going to create opportunities for an Asante. It's going to create opportunities for a Rucker. It's going to create opportunities for Des Evans. This creates opportunities for guys to really show out. And every bowl season, there's always somebody who shows up in a game for every team. You know, every team's got their guy that you did not expect to perform the way they did, right? Good or bad, right? But a lot of times it's good. A lot of times there's, 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 there's good stories that come out of this, guys that surprise you um, that you didn't know you know, we're as prepared or as ready to play as they were. And I think we're going to see that with some of these young guys. But from a player's perspective, like EJ said, going through the draft process, I was never in a position where I needed to make a decision on whether to opt out. And to be completely transparent on this, this opt-out thing is nothing new. It's been going on, frankly, since 2010. And it's been going on in our program since 2010. Just back then, we, you know, we listed guys as injured. But we had some opt-outs. Um, yeah, this was a – the, the insurance, right, so players, so the fans understand, top, top draft picks can get insurance on themselves um, in the event that they get injured, right, and they lose, you know, their insurance pays out whatever their, you know, their, their general draft prospects were. So if you're projected as a first-rounder and it's pretty solid, you know, not like you're a first-rounder on a McShay board, but you're a third-rounder on a Kuiper board and you're a, you're a second-rounder on a 247 board or something, right, but you are a, a – a, for, you know, just using us for illustration, if you are a hardcore first rounder, right, the analysis then becomes for your insurance payout, where, will, where, where would you have fallen and what would your signing bonus have been? And that's what your insurance payout is. Mm-hmm. And it's treated a lot like compensatory damages, right, from a lawyer's standpoint. So it's treated a lot like compensatory damages or any other type of insurance payout, where it really just makes you whole. So from a taxable standpoint, that income typically isn't, it's not treated as taxable income or ordinary income, right? It's just treated as something that puts you back to where you were, puts you back to square one and makes you whole as a person. Um, so there, there's really, there's no, there's generally not tax liability with that. Um, from at least in the, you know, the instances that I've seen, everything can be different. This is my, this is my lawyer caveat. I've written a couple of those policies, Mike, you're it, right. It depends, right? But for the most part, it's just a compensatory deal. So, mm. you know, a lot of guys started taking those, those, those policies out. 2009, it started, 2010, it got really popular. 
Um, and then the opt-out thing started in around, around 2010. But again, like within our own program, we, we listed guys as injured, not opt-outs. Um, and they may have had a nick or a cut or something here, uh, here and there. Maybe they had an earlier surgery they were recovering from, but they could have played, but they chose not to for their draft prospects. Um, you know, the, the, at the time, selfishly going into the going into the music city bowl i'll use my own personal example going into the music city bowl i was pissed off at a couple of guys were doing that i thought this is the same thing that a lot of the fans on the message boards unfortunately have have spewed out i felt it as a 22 year old kid right you're turning your back on us like you've been one of our leaders you're turning your back on us but i didn't i didn't think of it as well mike needs the film like mike right now is a late round free agent projection Mike is not a not Mike Ingersoll is not a draft lock. So Mike Ingersoll needs the film. I have to play. I don't have a choice whether you know whether I wanted to or not. I was going to have to play that game. Most guys have to play the game. I wasn't in their shoes, right? I wasn't a I wasn't a top half of the draft prospect, right? I didn't have to make those tough decisions. There's a lot of things that goes into that, right? Number one is I don't want to get injured. I talked to Ed Barham. I don't think Ed would have a problem with me mentioning this, but Ed made the great point to me, and I should have known this, but I, frankly, I forgot about it. You wanted an example of why you do this as a player. If fans really want to understand the risks in playing in a game like this, uh, Deontay Williams. Mm-hmm. Deontay was a hardcore first round pick. That kid was, that kid was the top rated safety in the draft on a lot of boards. Okay. Deontay had the opportunity to, you know, you never know how a career is going to pan out. But if, if, he had, if he had played the way he was capable of playing, Deontay could still be playing football right now. Deontay broke his leg against Tennessee, never played football again, right? His career was over. Now, whether he had an insurance policy or not, that's, a, that's personal to him. None of that really matters because I'm sure Deontay would have loved to keep playing football. That was taken from him, right? But he decided to sell out for the team. He wanted to play. He was a projected first-round pick and decided to play that game. And the one thing, the worst-case scenario that could have played out for any player played out for Deontay. So Deontay's the anecdote. He's the example. Jake Butt from Michigan, another one, right? You haven't seen J- – Jake Butt hasn't been a star in the NFL. He was – I, it was, he, he was definitely a Mackey finalist. I don't know if he won the Mackey award when he was at Michigan, right? But he was one of the top tight ends in the country, right? He, he blew his knee out against Florida state in that, in that orange bowl that Carolina should have played in, right? Did, where's Jake Butt right now, right? Those are, those are the examples, right? That's, that's one reason why you do this. Another reason why you do this is socioeconomic. Fans need to, you know, remove themselves from their own personal lives and their own personal experiences, Right. Some guys and their families need this. Some guys and their families need them to not get hurt, right? And they, they need them to go to the draft and get that guaranteed money and that signing bonus, right? So they can take care of some people. They might have sick parents at home, right? They might have family members that need help, right? They may need, they may need, they may need to pull some people out of some stuff, okay? And I'm not in a position to speak on behalf of those people, but those realities, are they exist, right? So that, that's another thing. Jason Staples brought this up recently too, that there are socioeconomic factors that, that fall into this, right? And factor number three is that, you know, these, and it's not really a factor, but it's a consideration for the fans that might have an opinion on these guys opting out. I have no disillusion that this decision was made flippantly. These were well thought out, difficult decisions for these guys to make. Again, you're talking about you're talking about some of these, you know, two of these three guys are captains, right? All three of them are star players and they know the team needs them. They know the team is potentially more productive with them on the field, right? And they have, they have sweated, they have bled, they have killed themselves and endured some really 
negative downtimes to get to this point, right? Turning their back on their teammates was absolutely a consideration that factored in. I don't want to do this to my guys from a personal standpoint, right? How is this going to affect my teammates? How does this affect my legacy? So I'm sure these guys thought about how does it affect my legacy, my reputation in the program amongst the fan base when I come back to school for games and to visit, right? Am I going to be looked at differently? Those are things that are considered and they have to be, right? But there's a lot of other, again, difficult things that have to go into a difficult decision like this. Socioeconomic factors, am I going to get injured? Where am I projected in the draft, Right. The NFL is, a, is fleeting. And, you know, people hear the, the joke, right? And say, NFL stands for not for long, the not for long league. And that's true. EJ and I can tell you, right? It's absolutely true. You have a very small window to make as much money as humanly possible. Kobe Bryant is my example for this. People got mad at Kobe for taking a max contract with the Lakers and he blew up the roster. Why wouldn't Kobe have done that? He, his career was, was coming to an end, right? And he had a small window. For him, it was about 20 years, right? But that's a small, that's a blip in the life of most human beings. He had a small window to make as much money as humanly possible. These guys coming out in a draft have, a, have an even smaller window. NFL players have a much smaller window to make as much money as humanly possible, to take care of themselves, to take care of their families, and to put themselves in a position to have a better life, right, than they otherwise would have, right? Why would you not take that opportunity? So again, from a personal standpoint, as far as the opt-outs are concerned, no, I didn't want them to opt out. I want them to play. I want to see the best product on the field. And this is a point that EJ made to me in a text and he's absolutely right. Right. I want to see them play. Why wouldn't I want to see them play? I want this team to win. Right. But it's, this is one of those personal decisions, right. Where you have to have understanding and you got to step away from yourself to really look at it. And from a player's perspective, yet from a fan's perspective, I want them to play. From a player's perspective, if I was in those shoes, like EJ said, I can't tell you I would have made a different decision. I, I, for, if, if, I was, if I was a first-round projected tackle, I might not have played against Tennessee. I mean, why, why would I risk being Deontay, right, or ending up like Jake Butt? Why, why would I risk that? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's fair for fans and people to be disappointed that their favorite players and Carolina star players – aren't playing when it comes to those three. But I think that's where you kind of have to draw the line and not get personal and not call these guys selfish because they're yeah, not. Yeah. They're, they're, None of those guys are calling them selfish. It's like, yeah, they're leaving the team before uh, a bowl game, but they're setting up their family potentially for generations and generations to come where you look at a guy like Chad Surratt and I've seen him now projected, late first round, early second round, where mm-hmm. if, if he gets hurt, you know, he's falling maybe fourth round. And I, I know the, the thought is like. And he's a guy who's been hurt before, right? Yeah. And it's a the, real risk for him. The thought is like, why did he play this year? Well, he didn't have to play this year really either. Like his brother no. opted out. The fact that he played this year was already a plus in a, in a weird year with COVID and everything going on. So I think, and, and it's also a case where, yeah, Carolina's in the Orange Bowl. Yeah, it's a huge game. But Carolina isn't in the Orange Bowl if it isn't for Chasserat, Michael Carter, De'Ami Brown, guys like that. And it, it goes back to the point where I think the, their long-term success is more important for this team than anything they could do in the Orange Bowl, where y- you'll remember more if those guys go on to have Pro Bowl careers and the impact for the program will be more when when they come back and it's positive and I think looking at it from a teammate perspective, I, I've seen a lot of people 
you know, kind of try to put words in teammates' mouths on, on message boards and on social media. But it, it's also a case where it's just like if a player transfers, like you know they're transferring because it's the best situation for themselves. Like like you guys mentioned, you know, Michael Carter didn't just say – didn't just pack up his bags and leave Chapel Hill Please. without saying goodbye to anybody yeah. or somebody like Chad Surratt. Like they're – it's a case where – they're making the best decision for themselves after consulting the coaching staff, after consulting, you know, their families, after consulting teammates. And yeah, these decisions are made in a vacuum too. That's a great point, right? Yeah. Like you consult coaches. And I remember I talked, I'll give one more example. I didn't mean to cut you off here, but it, I talked to Hakeem Nix right in 2008. Yeah. I remember we were at practice and I talked to Hakeem, who, a very good friend of mine um, to this day. And so I don't think, again, I don't think he'd have a problem with me telling the story either. But I talked to him at practice one day, and it was, you know, was Hakeem going to stay or is he going to leave? Is he coming back for 2009 or is he not? And I remember I asked, I was like, Hawk, what are you going to do, man? And he was like, Mike, man, I'll tell you what, bro. I talked to Coach Davis, and Coach Davis said, if I'm looking at first round, I got to go. So I ain't telling you what I'm going to do right now, but I'm just going to tell you, I got some good stuff happening. I'm like, Okay. And I took that as what it was, right? But he, what I got from that conversation was that he talked to, he talked to Butch, right? And this is – Mac is advising his guys. Coach, my point is coaches advise their players on the same stuff. If you're projected, you know, if you're a center – I use this, this example. If you're a center and you're a projected mid-round pick as an underclassman, you got to go. If you're a projected first-round pick or second-round pick as an underclassman, you got to go, right? Because your draft stock – can't really go much higher than that centers don't typically get drafted much higher than the mid rounds once in a while you got a pouncy or someone goes in the first round but there's like one guy if you're a center right so if you're projected mid round as a center you got to go if you're projected early round as a skill player or a lineman you got to go um you know these guys have projections and this is you know they got to go they played a whole season you know they got to go but they they take advisement from people you wouldn't expect right a lot of times they've got coaches telling them yeah, we need this for the team, right? Selfishly as a coach, for my contract and my incentive structure, I need you to play so that we have a better chance of winning and I get a payout, right? But for you, the best decision is to go. And a lot of times they're getting advisement from coaches. They're getting advisement from outside sources and trusted advisors, right? So again, this is not, these are not decisions that are made lightly. Hakeem didn't leave in 2008 right? Lightly. He loves Carolina to this day. You don't need any more. I mean, he's back all the time. Everything he owns is Carolina blue. That dude loves Chapel Hill, but he left because he had to, right? His stock wasn't getting any higher than it was. He wasn't going, his stock wasn't getting any higher than the first round. So he had to go. And guys like Chaz and Michael and, and Diami, you know, they got to go. And it starts right now with the orange bowl. So they can get ready for the draft and they can maximize their opportunities because we, it is, you're right, Taylor. It is better to have them have long pro careers than to show out in one game in the orange bowl and get hurt. It's better to have long pro careers from a recruiting standpoint and from a program prestige standpoint. That's why Alabama keeps reloading. That's why Kentucky basketball keeps reloading and Duke basketball reloads because guys know if I go here, I'm going pro. We need that pipeline. So there's benefits and drawbacks to all this. The short term, there's a potential drawback in performance on the field and an ultimate outcome of this game. But in the long run, right, there could be the building blocks being laid for long-term success, which I think should be the fan base, the coaching staff, everybody's, everybody's ultimate goal. Yeah, when you're not in the playoffs, this is just a, a drawback game. to playing big boy football, big time football, where guys are going to the NFL and 
looking out for their best interests and their family's best interests in a game where it, it means a lot to the program and to the fans, but in, in a one game perspective for these guys, it's, it's not worth jeopardizing future millions. And one thing I, I remember always being told about college football, it, it's still a business. Oh yeah. Like we had so many coaches and coordinators leave before bowl games because they got a better job, a better mm-hmm. paying job at a, at a better program. And the one thing people always told us was you, you have to get more out of the university than the university gets out of you. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. And at the same time, while they're getting more out of the university because they're, they are going to the NFL and they are going to that next level at the same time, they did make Carolina into a program back with national relevance and mm-hmm. it's a program where, where we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I think where the program is better today than it was two years ago because of guys like Chester at Diami Brown and Michael Carter. So it's, it's going to be worth watching to see, you know, how their NFL careers pan out, but, you know, looking at the orange bowl, it, it's a chance now for young guys, Eugene Asante, Elijah Green at running back, maybe um, Emery Simmons, Choffrey Brown, Anton mm-hmm. Green, and it's almost it's almost become a look ahead game now to the 2021 season. EJ, what are you kind of expecting from this Carolina young defense and and maybe Eugene Asante, especially where he's he's kind of been in this limited role and now going into this game, he's starting. I think this is going to be like a this is going to be the best case scenario you could hope for as far as a spring game. This is just going to be a live bullets spring game in the aspect of we're getting a chance to evaluate our younger talent. I think Eugene Asante is, is, is ready, more than ready to step in in his role. Not saying that the production is going to be the same, not saying that there's not going to be a learning curve for him being the full-time guy in there. But I do think athletically, talent-wise, I do think he's more than capable um, of coming in there and, and, and not filling Chaz's shoes, shoes, but doing enough to, to have to to help our defense be successful, um, I think a lot of those young guys are going to come in and, and surprise us even more. Um, we got guys like Miles Murphy, um, we got um, Tony Grimes. We have a lot of young talent that have been playing sparingly. Probably Tony Grimes and uh, Miles Murphy a little bit more, um, and Dez Evans. You have those guys that have been kind of peppered in and have been making splash plays. And that's what you really want to see from those younger guys. You want to see splash plays. You want to see plays where we put you in the right situation. This is the play that you know. This is the package that you know. This is where we can put you in and have you go out there and play freely and play with your instincts and see what type of plays you can make. So I think that we're going to see a lot of that. And I think that our defense is going to, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think a lot of our play calls and situational defense is going to be tailored to some of that uh, new talent being being inserted into our lineup. So um, I think you're going to see more blitzes. You're going to see these guys moving more. You, I don't think that Coach Baden is going to put these guys in a position where they have to sit back and read most of the time. I think they're going to give these guys an assignment. You hit this hole hard, your brother's going to back you up and is going to have your back and sit back and read and do whatever he needs to do what the play call calls for. So um, I, I definitely think this is going to be the best. This is the best case scenario right here. Um, I hate that those guys aren't going to be playing, but I do, like I said, I do think that these guys are, are, are more than capable. Um, so what I expect to see, I expect to see a defense that's flying around. I expect to see these guys highly, highly energetic. I think they're going to be uh, super excited to play in this game. I think the younger guys are going to be super excited to actually have a chance to go and start and knowing exactly what their role is going to be. They know that they're not playing because of an injury or anything, that they're actually part of the game plan. And I think that's going to boost a lot of the guys' self-confidence. So 
And we saw against Miami with a lot of those young guys plugged in there what our defense could potentially be. I mean, guys are making plays all over the field. So I don't think that – I with, with Chaz being um, all everything for our defense – Missing him is going to be is going to hurt, but I think it's going to give us a chance to really see what we really have. And I think that collectively what we have to back up Chaz could really supplement what he's not going to have. And even moving forward to next year, I think that these guys have a, a chance to even put better things on tape than Chaz did. I'm very careful about how I kind of mention that because I don't want to overlook kind of that now that Chaz is not playing for Carolina anymore. I don't want to overlook this to say that he wasn't a great player or that he wasn't very important uh, for our team because he was. But I do think that these guys, because of sitting back, watching his play style, watching how he prepares and watching his leadership style, I think that we're going to be better for that. So we were talking about earlier, what kind of legacy are these guys leaving behind? I think those main three that we're talking about are opting out. Those are the guys who have the least to worry about with their legacy. Michael Carter is a guy that, I mean, being that him and Logan were the same member, it seems like he's been in Chapel Hill for eight or nine years. But this is a guy that fans know. We watched him progress. We watched him grow. Chaz, I mean, that story has been told a thousand times. And a guy like Biami Brown, I mean, he's from Virginia. So, I, I mean, I know who he is anyway. But these these kids left an impact on this program. They broke records. They, they led their teams. They have a great relationship with their um, teammates. So it's not an easy decision, but I do think that they're going to be there to support these younger guys. Um, oh, well, Diami's a Charlotte kid. I don't know why I thought he was from Virginia. I think I'm thinking of Daz. someone else. Yeah, I'm thinking of Daz, yeah. Mike has to claim those Charlotte kids. We got to claim them, man. We got a little message thing going on the side. Fan, fans don't want to read what's in this little message thing. <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't. But, uh, yeah, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more than confident. I mean, on the offensive side, I don't even think we need to mention about the talent that we have coming coming up behind uh, Deami Brown. I mean, we still have we still have Javante. Like, and I think this is going to be. I'm almost thinking in my mind that Michael Carter says, "Hey, I'm probably the guy that's solidified to get drafted. I'll opt out of this game just to just so you can get a, a full game of carries." And from everything that I'm hearing, I mean, you saw a tweet come out from Michael Carter that he was like, "Yeah, I got first team, but did y'all see that Javante got second team? Like, he's more excited for that guy." than he is for his own self. So I think that – I really do think that he's uh, that he's unselfishly taking a back seat, saying that, hey, I've, I've put in my work. The guys know what I can offer. The only questions about you are you are every down back. So go out there and prove it. I don't think that the, I don't think this is a situation where these guys are just not involved with practice or not around the program or not helping these guys out. These guys are still coaching up these younger guys, telling them what they're seeing. So their fingerprints are still all over this program. Um, so – like I said, I'm expecting to see an excited bunch that's going to be well, well prepared for a Texas A&M team on January 2nd. It's crazy how Carolina can be missing two guys on the offensive side of the ball, Michael Carter and Deami Brown. And there almost doesn't feel like there is that much of a worry from an offensive perspective because of how historic, because of how good Sam Howell is, because of how good Javante Williams is, because of how much depth Carolina has at the wide receiver position where it does mm-hmm. feel like they can kind of – kind of take a hit at those positions where you know you're not that worried about their offensive production and it, it's going to come down to how does Carolina replace a guy like Chaz Surratt because I, I think I have full confidence in what Coach Longo's doing from an offensive perspective and kind of like I mentioned before if if Sam Howell is getting off that plane in South Beach I, I'm going to take North Carolina and I'm going to like North Carolina's chances in that game but I'm glad you mentioned the all ACC teams because that's where I was going to go next where six Tar Heels were named to all ACC teams on the first team you have Michael Carter, Deami Brown and Chaz Surratt and the second team was Sam Howell 
and Javante Williams. And then the third team was Joshua Azudu and Michael Carter as an all-purpose back. But, Mike, can we talk for a second about Javante Williams getting absolutely robbed? Yeah. Hosed. Hosed. He, so, I mean, ETN makes it – ETN makes the first team because of his body of work. I mean, that's, that's it. ETN makes it – and because Clemson is Clemson, right, and they're playing for the national championship. What, you, what, what fans need to remember is that a lot of these all-conference awards are – it's not that they're political, but there's not really a better word for it. Um, circumstantial. That's a better word for it. They're circumstantial. The, uh, you know, Ohio State puts more people on the Big Ten all-conference team, I'm sure, than any other Big Ten team year in and year out. Southern Cal and Oregon probably put more people on the all-conference team than the rest of them. Um, you know, Clemson, is, Alabama puts more people on the SEC all-conference team, I'm sure, than any other SEC team. This is just – and LSU last year, I'm sure, put a, more people, right? That was LSU's year to have more people on the all-conference team than some of the other teams. It is circumstantial. The success of your team and the success of your program and the reputation of your program does help in getting these all-conference awards. There is a bias towards that. Um, it's an understandable bias. Uh, it's not necessarily fair. Um, I, can, I can speak from personal experience that all-conference awards, I think, are BS. <laughs> uh, you know, when I played, I saw some folks make some, make some teams over me that I, uh, I vehemently disagreed with based on total production and film. Um, but that's not, that wasn't my decision to make. Um, so, you know, it's it, a lot of it, you know, and the guys that, that got nods over me played for his, you know, more historic powers. They were guys from Miami and from Virginia tech and Florida state. And those, those are your traditional powers that were in our conference. And, you know, they got, they got the benefit of, of the history of those programs over me in you know, what I, what I assume were close races, um, for those, for those, for those nods and the, for those awards. So, that happens to guys every single year. And that's not sour grapes. That's just a personal experience, right? It's my life turned out fine. But, you know, to explain what sort of happened to, to Michael Carter or to, uh, sorry, to Javante, you know, he's, there, there's a bias. Number one, I think voters don't want to put two guys from the same team and, you know, two guys from the same backfield, right? Giving both of them, yeah, giving both of them the first team award um, as, you know, when there's two running back slots, give both guys from the same backfield, both those slots on the first team. I think there's that that's going on there. I think there's ETN has been a consistent, steady player and a, a spectacular player, frankly, for Clemson for a long time. And he had a good year this year. Um, I don't think he had the production that Javante had. I don't think he had the impact on games that Javante had. Um, you know, so you can look at it, you know, look at it that way. I mean, he got the nod because he's older, he's accomplished more throughout, throughout his career. He's a household name in the ACC and nationally. So, you know, so I think a lot of that factored in the fact that Javante made second team, you know, I think he looks at, and the voters probably looked at and the fans should look at, I'm sure the coaching staff looks at is just first team part three, right? There's not a third running back slot on the first team. So they gave it to Javante as a second team, right? But, you know, with the understanding that he is as good and capable and deserving of a first-team selection as anybody else. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of the stuff that goes on, you know, with the voters. You know, and, and a lot of those voters, I will say, you know, they do, they do as good a job as they can evaluating players, but doing some of the stuff I can, I can say that, you know, having, having votes for some awards and things like that and superlatives, um, you know, since I've left college, I've realized that, you know, the attention – the attention doesn't go into certain positions that you think it should, right? From some of the voters, um, you know, that, that, that also factors into it somewhat, you know, that voters that don't, 
necessarily know exactly what they're voting on or really kind of what they're looking at from a film standpoint or from a TV copy standpoint, which is typically all they have. Um, you know, they will, if they're on the fence about something, they're going to side with the established program and the established name. You know, so that's a long explanation as all of my explanations are as to why Javante got shoved onto the second team when he absolutely was the other first team running back this year. And I don't think there's any rational argument against that. Um, except that ETN is an established name at an established program who's playing for most likely a national championship this year. Yeah. When, when I was kind of looking into the numbers, the arguments that I was seeing from the Clemson side were things like ETN doesn't play in the fourth quarter. Um, ETN is a better receiving back, but then like you look at the actual numbers and Javante Williams has 20 less touches than ETN. He has more total yards he has seven more total touchdowns. And ETN's and they run the same offense. ETN's averaging 5.6 yards per carry. Javante's averaging 7.3 yards per carry. And then it's kind of like, you know, where are, those, where are those yards coming from? And in games six point 6.4 of them are coming after contact. In, in, you're kind of wondering, you know, where are, those, where are those games coming from? Maybe that's kind of skewing it. In mm-hmm. games against ranked teams, Michael Carter – three games he's averaging 157 rushing yards Javante Williams in three games against ranked teams is averaging 141 rushing yards and then against ranked teams Travis Etienne in three games is averaging 100 rushing yards so it's like every normally I wouldn't even make a big deal about first team second team I don't think it matters in the grand scheme of things I don't think a guy like Javante Williams really cares but I mean the voters it's not going to affect his draft stock I can tell you that the voters might as well went down to Chapel Hill and slapped Javante Williams across the face <laughs> to put him on the second team, to be frank, because yeah. there's, no, there's no number to justify outside wins and losses and y- your record and your final ranking in the poll to kind of say that Javante Williams didn't deserve to be on the first team. And if, if somebody was going to get snubbed, I thought it would be somebody like Michael Carter where Javante breaks like the single season total touchdown record at Carolina. So that was kind of crazy. But the other point it's I wanted to – knuckle butt is what it is. <laughs> The other point that I wanted to make from the uh, all ACC votes, EJ, since 2000, the only Tar Heel defensive players to go back-to-back all ACC first team, it's Quentin Copels, Julius Peppers, and now Chaz Surratt. When you hear those names and those kind of caliber of players, does it make Chaz Surratt's journey from a struggling quarterback to a future NFL draft pick that more impressive? Heck yeah. I mean, I I think he's going to have the most impressive story probably of any Carolina defender. I mean, we hear the stories about Julius Pepper doing speed and conditioning training with the skill people and hopping right in line and going to do it, which, which beating the receivers. Yeah. Yeah. When you're in coach Connors program, it's hard enough to do your own stuff, but to be able to do that is absolutely impressive. But Chaz came in, he was all, he was Gatorade player of the year quarterback. He was a starter at quarterback. He comes in, he, he has a terrible game, gets hurt, turns his career around to be one of the best linebackers to really ever, I think, um, even in, with this small body of work, one of the best linebackers talent-wise to step on the field for Carolina. So I don't know who's to say that his career is going to be a Julius Peppers career. I think that Julius, Julius had a one in 1,000 type career. I mean, the only other person I think body of work you can compare him to defensively at Carolina would be a Lawrence Taylor. 
So, but I do think that his story is going to be one that's going to be told a million times in Carolina. There will be, as long as Chaz plays five or six years in the NFL, there will be something in our hall telling his story. There will be pictures of him around. That I mean, that's a great recruiting tool to take a quarterback, someone who's never really been exposed to linebacker, to to – those positions are really two extremes if you think about it. Quarterback's job is to not be physical, stay as clean as stay clean, mm-hmm. don't take unnecessary hits. As a middle linebacker, your job is to be the quarterback and inflict punishment. I mean, I know we don't like to talk in those terms when referring to football these days, but that's really <laughs> what the job is to to inflict punishment. So, I mean, do you play linebacker? You got to have a screw loose. I mean, that's yeah, what they've you, always said, especially middle linebacker, right? I mean, oh yeah, they, I, I played with a guy Javon Belcher who had an unfortunate. Um, yeah, obviously his death was very unfortunate. But I played with Javon in uh, in Kansas City briefly, and and that dude was the epitome of screw loose on a football mm-hmm. field, right? I mean, he mm-hmm. you could just see there's a twinkle in his eye. Like Lawrence Taylor's got that twinkle, right? I mean, you've seen it. Like to play linebacker, you got to have there's there's something going on, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, and Chaz, you know, sticking his nose in there like that. You're right. It's a it's a tale it's a tale of two positions between quarterback and and, and linebacker, and he. He had the, you know, whatever that was, he had the bug in him. He had, mm-hmm. he had the ability to do it, and he would have never known it when he was a quarterback. Yeah, definitely. He, he's one of those guys that can just do it. I mean, like, like Mike said, you do have those linebackers that – Kevin Reddick's got that thing too, by the way. Kevin Reddick exactly. hit like a truck. <laughs> yeah, Kevin, Kevin is one of those guys that's super calm off the field, but if you get between the, between the paint, he's an absolute madman. And, I mean, th- th- that's how it is. You have those guys like that, and you have guys that can just do it. I think Quan Sturdivant and Bruce Carter were the exact – those guys when you talk to them if you're on the field even in a huddle with them you would not think that these guys were were the most confident as confident as they were and as capable as they were because they were two very humble guys they were honestly both quiet guys I mean Quan now is not quiet at all but Bruce (laughs) is still a relatively quiet guy and I think Chaz kind of fits into that mold he's just a guy that can do it he's just athletically he just knows the game he knows football and he has athletic gifts to back it up so I do think that he has earned his place among among those guys who've had those back-to-back ACC wins. But and I also think he's earned his way, earned his story, like the the, the Choo Choo's, the Julius Peppers, the Lawrence Taylors, the guys who have a legacy at, at, at Carolina, the, the Darian Durancey for someone people, the guys don't talk about who had an absolutely wonderful career at Carolina, like and as an and as a, and as a, and as a CFL folk legend. Oh yeah, had a oh, truck yeah. named after him in Saskatchewan. Had a had a Durant edition F one fifty that mm-hmm. you could only buy in Saskatchewan. How about that? Yeah, yeah. For anybody who's younger on this podcast, if you don't know anything about Darian Durant, aka D Block, please look him up. He's a Carolina <laughs> legend. But I, I do. I, I think Chaz is going to be mentioned with those guys. So I mean, it's hard to see a guy like that go. But you're also always grateful and gracious about the time that he spent there and the fact that he chose to spend that time in our program and elevate it to a place where. We didn't two years ago. You, we wouldn't think we'd be playing in the Orange Bowl. So, I mean, my hats go off to him, and I think he deserves any roses that he gets from that program. It's definitely an awesome story, and I, I think you're right. Where he'll have something in the the Hall of Honor in Keene Football Stadium. Where I, I kind of wasn't thinking about that before, but you have a guy go from a quarterback who looked like he was on his way out to now a late first round, early second round type pick. So there, there's, there's got to be a, a Chasserac type of section in, in the Hall of Honor. But, Mike, with it being the 10-year anniversary of the Music City Bowl next week, you have a long-form article dropping today on Inside Carolina with a player's perspective of everything that went down in 
2010. Can you tell the fans a little more about that to kind of close out this podcast? Thank you, Taylor. Yeah. So the, there, the, the 2010 season and the NCAA investigation have been reported on ad nauseum, uh, obviously at the time and really since then, um, you know, it's, there's, there's been exhaustive reporting, a lot of it done by Greg Barnes and it's been very good. Um, but you know, every major news outlet, media sports news outlet has covered it as well. Um, the one perspective that was never really shared was the player's perspective. And 2010 was a very unique type of season. Um, it's it, one that hasn't, we've never seen at Carolina and hopefully we never see one like it again. Um, it's a, a lot of people look at it and remember it negatively um, and see it as a, as a, as a sort of a dark time. Uh, but for the people who were involved in the program, like me, um, for the, from the player's standpoint, the story is a little different. The narrative should be a little different. It was a season of a lot of positives. There's a lot of great takeaways to, to take out of that season, primarily um, the effort of that coaching staff to keep everybody together and to prepare and have us prepared to be able to play and to, 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 to go out and perform, you know, shorthanded and the players to not get distracted and to go out and to pull out what, what turned out to be a successful season. I used to tell people that, you know, that team was projected to potentially play for a national championship. Um, you know, when we watched Auburn lift up the trophy in Tempe, Arizona, uh, at the BCS national championship game, it was a gut punch to a lot of us. Um, season was over at that point, but we all watched it and it texting back and forth with guys. It was a lot of, we should have been there type of talk. Um, but what I tell people is that even though that team was projected to play for a national championship, potentially, um, I think that eight and five and beating an SEC team, beating Tennessee on basically their home field in Nashville, um, you know, with 60,000 Tennessee fans in the stadium, um, ending the season that way and coming out with eight wins in spite of all of that, I think I'm more proud of that team and that result than I may have been with a national championship. I, I can never know what the feeling of a national championship would have been, but I know that I'm extremely proud of that team um, and proud to have played for that team. And I think that season should be viewed as a, as a success and not a dark time. So the article dives into that. It dives into the player's perspective and their experiences for those who had to be interviewed by the NCAA, um, sort of the shortcomings of the university. You know, there, there, there are some critical components to it, but I think overall, um, you know, the fan should take away one, one major thing from the article to the extent that you decide to read it. Um, a lot has led up to Mac Brown's resurgence at this program. Uh, we are proud as former players. I think EJ will, will agree with this. We are very proud of the trajectory this program is on, the work product that Mac has put on the field, the types of men who are coming out of the program and the coaches who are leading the program. Um, we are, you know, that, that, that team in 2010 had its eyes set on some pretty lofty goals, right? And the team felt like it was head, heading towards, um, the program felt like it was heading towards some pretty high highs. Mac currently has us on a collision course to the highest highs the program's ever seen, higher than we could have ever, than, than, we, than we imagined in 2010 um, and that we actually reached in 2010. But 2010 is a, um, you know, it's not a, again, it's not a sour grapes thing. Um, it is a, this is, this is one step in the, in the progression to getting to where we are now, to the success that we're seeing now, right? That was part of what helped us get here. We, you know, I feel like, I feel like this program needed that year. We needed that you know, as much as we hate to say it now, you know, that, that set the stage for the comeback story that we're seeing now and, and, the, and the, the, the path to the highest highs that it looks like Mac has us on. Um, so it's really just to tell that story from the player's perspective, sort of their experiences, um, which I, I feel like hadn't been expressed um, at any point through media reporting 
you know, until now. Uh, so that's, that, that's coming out. I believe that's dropping about midday today. Um, you know, please take a chance to read it. Um, and hopefully it'll give you a little more appreciation for what you're seeing in, in this team that's going down to the Orange Bowl. Um, you know, they, are, they deserve a ton of credit. Mac Brown deserves a ton of credit for what's going on, overcoming some of the things that we had to experience 10 years ago, which the residual effects were still being felt when Mac took over that program. Um, so, you know, I hope everybody reads it and enjoys it. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm around for positive comments, negative comments, whatever, you know, what have you, but uh, I appreciate you giving me a chance to sort of describe what, you know, what, what that article is. Looking forward to reading it and everybody should take the time to read it before sometime before the bowl game, as Mike said, and guys, that's all I have for you today. In true positivity pod form, we go the longest ever with no game to talk about. So <laughs> we'll be back, uh, I guess in about 12 days to talk about the orange bowl with the orange bowl, 10 days or we'll, we'll drop that next pod after the day after the game, but guys, awesome catching up with you and hope you guys have a uh, happy holidays. Same to you. Happy holidays. Thanks Taylor. Exclusively on Paramount Plus. Cindy, 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 Cindy Lauper. Catch the new documentary critics are calling a revelation. She's going to fight the fight. As Cindy Lauper reveals in her own words the inspiration behind her biggest hits. If you're doing what you love, magic. See what shaped music's most authentic superstar. When you're that different, you view other people as having a problem. Catch Cindy Lauper, Let the Canary Sing. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it for free. Terms apply.